Indeed, sweet are the promises, and we can trust. But did you ever think about what it takes for us to be able to trust God? What it takes for us to be able to trust that He will fulfill His promises? Have you ever thought about that? This morning we're going to think about that. We're going to see what God Himself says about that. What kind of God does he have to be in order for us to be able to trust his promises? In order for us to be able to follow him unreservedly, what kind of God are we talking about? These are the kinds of questions the Apostle Paul asks and answers in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And that's where we are today in our sermon series on the book of Romans. We are doing a a bit of a flyover, four sermons on this great letter, this big book, the book of Romans. And as we begin, I think it would be good for us to look back a bit and see where these three chapters this morning fit into the whole book. Some of you are visiting with us, and you have not uh, been along for this ride, and so uh, we'll try to catch you up a little bit. And some of you, most of us, probably forget where we've been. So let's start at the beginning. This book of Romans, chapter 1, is written to the Christians in Rome. These Christians had never had the benefit of direct apostolic teaching. They hadn't had the benefit of the Apostle Paul visiting with them and preaching to them and walking with them, teaching, with, teaching them as he had so many other churches. Instead, they had the Old Testament. They had at least part of the Scriptures the Old Testament scriptures, and they had undoubtedly some believers there who had, who had come from Jerusalem, who had been witnesses to what had happened in the life of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Christ. And so they knew enough. They had enough information to be Christians. They knew about Jesus. They knew what he had done, and they trusted him. But the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to them as an extended explanation of the gospel. And perhaps he is he's writing to encourage them, I'm sure. Probably he's also writing to kind of fill in some of the details that they might be missing. And he's certainly writing to answer some of their questions. Now these Christians in Rome were probably primarily Gentiles. There were uh, probably also quite a few or some believing Jews in the church at Rome. And in the first couple of chapters of the book of Romans, the apostle demonstrates how all people, including the Jews, are unrighteous apart from God. Both Jews and Gentiles need the same gospel. Now certainly the Jews did have some initial advantage. They were the ones through whom Christ uh, had been revealed to the world. They were the ones through whom God had chosen to reveal himself. But that advantage didn't make them less sinful or more holy. Then the apostle goes to great lengths uh, in chapters 3, 4, and 5 to show that the righteousness that God requires only comes through faith in him. And this is the way it always was and always has been, even with Abraham. This is how Abraham was counted righteous before God. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the apostle explains how this faith and righteousness work. How does this, how does this work? And he goes into to detail about that. And he talks about, as we, t- as we looked at two Sundays ago, he talks about how we partake of union with Christ. We become dead to our sinful state, and we become alive in Christ. But then there's still this interface, this, this dilemma that we face between our mortal bodies of flesh and our spirit, which is made alive in Christ. And how is this going to work itself out in our life as we are not yet fully glorified? And so Romans chapter 7 and then into chapter 8 talks about this. And in chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, probably the high water mark of this entire epistle, the apostle gives us 
a beautiful description of the promises of God that are ours through Christ. And what beautiful promises they are. Sweet are the promises. Yes, they are. And then we come to chapters 9 through 11, and it seems like the apostle changes gears here. But we will look at this more closely this morning. And then following chapters 9 through 11, we have a couple of chapters, uh, starting in chapter 12, outlining the practical outworking of the gospel in our daily lives. So how does this affect the way we live day to day with each other uh, in our world? So this is the end of the gospel in terms of the outworking of it. And I know that for some of you, that is what you are waiting for. You just can't wait until we get to the practical section of Romans. You want, you want the Apostle Paul to tell you what to do. You don't have much use for all this debatable theology and long explanations. Well, not so fast. Let me remind you of a few things. First of all, the practical outworkings of the gospel are of very little value without an understanding of the gospel, without an appreciation for the gospel. So if you want chapters 12 through 16, then you have to have chapters 1 through 11. Otherwise, everything you do in chapters 12 through 16 is empty and void of any lasting value. Well, you say then, just give me chapter 8. I, I can deal with chapter 8. All right? Chapter 8 is beautiful. It is encouraging. It is promising. And we can resonate with that. Well, let me attempt today to show you how the promises in chapter 8 depend on chapters 9 through 11. The promises in chapters 8 are not very sweet. They're not very good unless... We have a God who is good and a God who is true and a God who is sovereign and a God who is powerful. Otherwise, those promises are worthless. You see, in chapter 8, we have all these great and precious promises regarding the work of Christ on our behalf from eternity past to eternity future. If we come to him in faith, we can experience, we can participate in these blessings. But the Christians to whom Paul was writing, they had read the Old Testament. They had heard about God's chosen people, the Jews. They had read all the promises that God had made, all the blessings he had promised to the Jews, his chosen people. And then they looked around and they saw that the Jews were not being blessed the way God had promised. In fact, it looked... It looked as if those promises were empty. It looked as if they had failed. So how were they going to believe these new promises that the Apostle Paul was giving them in Romans chapter 8? And what was going on with the Jews anyway? Weren't they God's chosen people? Why are they still in their sins? Why do they not believe? perhaps there were some believing Jews in Rome, as I've already said, perhaps they were a little bit miffed. Why should these Gentiles be getting all the blessings? And yet the Jews aren't. God's own chosen people, shouldn't they be receiving the blessings? And so this is the context now for these next three chapters. And I'm going to read all three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. And then I'm going to make some comments. But before I read, I, I think it would be helpful for us to keep a few other things in mind to prepare us as we hear the Word of God. First of all, it is so important that we let these texts of Scripture, these chapters, let them say what they want to say. We have to approach the Word of God with humility. We have to approach the Word of God with the attitude of, yes, Lord, yes. We must try to approach the text of Scripture, all of Scripture, with this honest willingness to hear and understand. 
Now, it is our temptation, it is our inclination to bring our preconceived ideas and understandings to the text and then read it in light of what we already know. Let's try not to do that this morning. Secondly, let's keep in mind that there are lots of implications that we will not have time to unpack or explore this morning. This is rich text. Uh, It is rich text format, okay? For those of you who know anything about computers, you know what I'm talking about. This is rich text. There's lots of things here that we could spend a lot of time on. But we don't have time for that this morning. And even if we did have time for it, I still don't think we could unpack it all. All right? Because this is bigger than us. So you're going to have to be okay with that. You're going to have to be okay with reading this and not understanding everything. You must be willing to rest and trust God with some of these things. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have it all figured out if you trust that God does have it all figured out. So don't trust in your own ability to make sense of it all. And thirdly, it's often a temptation when we run into some of the hard teachings in these passages, it's often a temptation to dismiss them or to disregard them because they don't fit with our view of who God is. Surely, God couldn't do that. No. God isn't like that. Well, let me remind you, you aren't God. And He is. And secondly, He has revealed Himself to us. And this is part of His revelation. And remember one other thing. This isn't a God This isn't a God who is aloof. This isn't a God who sits in some heavenly mansion far removed from the reality of his people and his created world and who capriciously or arbitrarily issues commands and judgments. No, this is a God who has entered our world. This is a God who came and lived with us and walked with us and died for us. This is a God who loves us. This is God who, who loves us to the extent that he gave of himself for us. This is a God who cares deeply. He's a God who knows how it is. He's a God who cares, who knows, who loves, who acts accordingly. So, before you charge God with being unjust or cruel or arbitrary, Think about who you're talking about. Now let's read Romans chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hate it. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, 
I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch, then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That ought to cause you to worship. That is the only proper response. Now, I realize we don't have much time left to unpack all of this. But I think it's important for us to have the weight of this text to come to bear on us. And we will come back through this later, Lord willing, in a later sermon series, and we will take it in more detail. We will dig down deeper. But for this morning, here's what we're going to do in the time that we have left. We're going to go through these three chapters, and we're going to note the places where the apostle answers objections, where he answers questions. In quite a few places he writes, what shall we say then? Or, but how? Or, I ask then. And as he has done so many times before in this book, the apostle anticipates the questions, he anticipates the objections, and he takes them head on. And I think that by looking at these objections, by looking at these questions, we can more clearly understand the point he is trying to make. Otherwise, the objections or the questions would be irrelevant. But we can see through the questions, we can see through the objections, what he's really getting at. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to take all these, and I think there's about 11 of them, and we're just going to go through them one at a time. So the first question. The first question is not stated in this, in this way, but I believe this is how it goes. So, if the Israelites had all of these promises, they had this list here in chapter 9, verse 4 and following. If the Israelites had all of this, all of these promises of God, how come they aren't experiencing them? How come they aren't being made effective in their life? And the, the underlying question is, so has the word of God failed? Have the promises of God failed? Is that, what, is that what's happened here? And the Apostle Paul says, no, that's not what's happened here. What you have to understand, he says, is that not all the physical descendants of Israel, not all the Jews by flesh, by birth, are the real Israel. No, the real Israel are children of the promise. The ones whom God has said, you shall be born. As he said about Isaac. Not all of the descendants of any of the fathers were children of the promise. So, not all of Abraham's children were children of the promise. Remember, there was Ishmael, also a son of Abraham. He wasn't a child of the promise. And then there were Jacob and Esau, And Jacob was the child of promise, and Esau wasn't, even though they had the same father. And so what he's pointing to here is it doesn't matter your lineage. It doesn't matter your descendant, who you're a descendant of. That doesn't bring you any special favor with God. No, what brings you favor with God is if you're a child of the promise. The only people who are God's people are ones of the the promise. And so there is the Israel, who are Israel by the flesh, but then there are the true Israel, who are Israel by the promise. And and now you say, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. And the Apostle Paul, he anticipates this objection, and and he says, what shall we say then in verse 14? Is God unjust? This doesn't sound right to us, does it? Is God unjust? This isn't fair. Well, let me ask you. Do you really want fair? Do you really want what's fair? Do you really want justice? 
then none of us would receive anything but the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul has already made that very clear. All of us, Jew, Gentile, all of us, subject to the wrath of God. So we don't want fair. We don't want fair. We need mercy. And he says here, God has mercy on some. Now this isn't fair. Remember, it's not fair. We don't want fair. But it is just. And here's why it's just. Here's, here's what he says. If God's mercy depended on something that we have done to deserve it, if God's mercy depended on who we were related to, and then he didn't show us mercy, he would be unjust. But because it depends, because God's mercy depends not on our will, not on our efforts, not on who we're related to, then he can be just, and he is just, in showing mercy to whomever he wills. Because it doesn't depend on who we're related to, and it doesn't depend on what, what we have done to try to earn favor with him. So he is just in showing mercy to some and letting others go their way, their way to, to destruction. But then there's a second objection that comes quickly on the heels of the first. Why does he still find fault? Verse 19. Okay, so God chooses he, who he will show mercy to. All right. Then why does he still blame me for my choices and my actions? And the apostle realizes that this is going to be the objection, that this is going to be the question, so he, he deals with it head on. And he says, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Who are you anyway? And who made you anyway? And if God made you, and he holds you responsible for your choices and actions, then who are you to disagree with him? And he goes on to explain, don't you see how he can use those whom he has created to accomplish his purposes? He has that right. He, he can take out of the same lump of clay, and he can make different kinds of clay pots. And some of them can be used for very honorable purposes, and others for more ordinary purposes. That's his prerogative because he is God. Maybe he wants to use the Jews and their rejection of himself to accomplish the salvation of the Gentiles. That's the right of God to do that. In all of this, we must depend on God. We must trust him. We dare not second guess or judge God. He has a plan for all of this and for all of his people. Hosea and Isaiah, these were Old Testament prophets, they realized this. They saw that unless God would work through the children of the promise, we would all be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We heard about that last Sunday. Unless God would act, unless God would promise, we would all be subject to destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the, the prophets went on to acknowledge that not all the descendants of Abraham were really sons of God. And God was using some of them to raise up other sons who weren't physical descendants of Abraham. And so a question comes then in verse 30 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? <laughs> what are we going to do with this? We can see that only those who have faith in God will be righteous. If we attempt to be in God's family by our lineage or by our attempts to add obedience to the law, we will not succeed. Only those who believe in Christ will be saved. This is the way it has always been. This is the way it will always be. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Chapter 10, verse 4. But then another question comes immediately. So what does this faith consist of? What is the message? Well, the message is this. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This applies to everyone, Jew and Gentile, Greek and pagan, American and Chinese, everyone who believes in him, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This offer is extended to everyone. The only people who will be saved are those who trust God and submit to his lordship and believe that what he has done is sufficient for our salvation. But then the fourth question, okay, okay, but how are we or, or how are they or we to call on him if we don't actually believe? How are we going to call on him if we don't actually believe? And how are we going to believe unless we hear? In other words, how are they going to get this promise so that they can believe and trust? This isn't fair, is it? God is saying that you can't be saved unless you respond to this message. But how are we going to get the message? Well, we depend on God again. We depend on God. Notice how this works. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And who does the sending? It's God. It's God who sends the prophets. It's God who sent his son. It's God who sends the apostles. It's God who even today sends missionaries and preachers and evangelists. This all goes back to God. God has appointed messengers to deliver this news and he works in our hearts so that this message takes root. These are the means that God has chosen by which to bring the word to bear on the hearts of those who will believe. But here comes the third objection. Okay, but obviously not everybody that hears believes. Right? We know that. You can preach to the sinner until you're blue in the face. It doesn't mean he's going to believe. So is there something wrong with the word of God? Is there something wrong with the message? Is God not powerful? No. How about the Jews? I mean, the evidence here <clears throat> is that the Jews have the advantage. The Jews, of all people, ought to be believing. Maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe that's what the problem is. Verse 19. Did Israel not understand? I mean, why, why have they rejected God? They heard, yes, it says they heard, and they, the words of God went to the ends of the world. So not hearing wasn't the issue. Maybe it was the not understanding that's the issue. No, that's not the issue either. They understood it. They heard it. They understood it, but what happened? They were disobedient. They were contrary. They said, I don't want it. I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to listen. So they rejected the word of God. And it indicates here in verse 20 that there were others outside of the physical Israel who were actually seeking the word. They were actually seeking out the prophets, even while God's own people were rejecting him. So it wasn't a matter of understanding. Because these other people could come and they, got, they understood and they believed. So what does this all mean? Chapter 11. I ask then, so does this mean God has rejected his people? Is that what this means? By no means. God forbid. No, it doesn't mean that. God still has a people. The Apostle Paul says, I am proof that God has not rejected his people. I am an Israelite. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. In other places, he talks about himself as the Israelite of the Israelites. I'm still here. God hasn't rejected his people. And then he recounts the account of Elijah, and Elijah had similar questions. God, 
What have you done? They've killed all your prophets. There's nobody left but me. And God comes and says, no, I have kept a remnant. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God is faithful. God is faithful to his people. God still has his people. True Israel is still obeying God. True Israel is still trusting God. Remember, not all of the descendants of Israel are children of the promise. All through history, God has had his people. So it says, those whom God has foreknown, those whom he has chosen, those have been his people, even to the present time. It says in verse 5, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now this isn't based on whether one person is more righteous than another in their own effort. This is based on the grace of God. Those who were the true Israel, those who trusted God by faith, have always received the promise and blessings of God. God's promises have never failed for those who have trusted in Him. Ever. And those who were not true Israel, those who have rejected God, have continued in their sin and disobedience and are subject to the wrath of God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is that certainty, it is that promise, and it is that understanding of the sovereignty of God that empowers us and motivates us to pray for lost souls. Why would you ever pray for someone to be saved if you didn't think God was capable of saving them? Why would you ever go preach or teach or evangelize if you didn't think that God was capable of saving those people when they heard his word? God has always blessed. God has always fulfilled his promises to those who have been obedient to the faith. So then another implication comes. Another question comes. So these non-remnant Israel, these not, not the true Israel ones, did they stumble just so they would fall? Is that all this is about? So they, they tripped and they fell just so they could, just so they could fall. Is that the end of their purpose? Is that all they're good for? No. What is the purpose of God in all of this? Even those children, those children of the flesh, God has used for his good purposes. For it says here, in the failure and disobedience of the Jews, God has brought salvation to the Gentiles. And he has done this. Now notice how this is. This is beautiful. So in the fall, in the stumbling of the, the non-Israel of, of Israel, the not the true Israel, in their stumbling, in their falling, the gospel is made known to the Gentiles. And because of that, gospel being made known to the Gentiles, the Jews become jealous and they're drawn back to God. Who else could have thought of something like this? It's beautiful. God has done this. God has used the failure and the disobedience of the Jews to bring salvation to the Gentiles. He's brought salvation to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous so they will be motivated to turn back to God. Now, if, if their rejection of the gospel, it says here in verse 12, if their rejection of the gospel has done all this, imagine what their inclusion will do. Imagine how it'll be when they are restored. If God can use the failures and disobedience and falling and stumbling of the descendants of Abraham, imagine what he can do with their, with their obedience. Imagine what he can do when they are included. Seventh question. Now you mean to tell me that as a Gentile, the reason I'm saved is, becomes, is because some Jew didn't believe. That's what you're saying, right? The reason that I, as a Gentile, can believe is because some Jew didn't. Well, not exactly. And there's this long section here now in chapter 11 about this grafting process. Now, some of you are more agriculturally minded than others, and you understand what this, how this is. But basically, when you graft something, 
You take and you, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you break off a branch, off of a tree. You might cut it off, <coughs> but in, in any case, you take off a, a branch. And you take a, a branch from another tree that might be totally unrelated. And you splice it in to the, one you, the place you have broken off. And you wrap it up, and <clears throat> the sap begins to flow from this, this trunk or this main branch into this grafted off branch, and it becomes fastened to the tree. It becomes a part of the tree. It's amazing. Who would have ever thought about something like that? But this is how God works. And so he has worked with his people. It's true that because the branches of unbelieving Israelites were broken off, that did make a place where as a Gentile we could be grafted into the tree. But he says, be careful and don't be proud about this, okay? Remember, it is always unbelief and disobedience that gets the branches broken off. Always. Unbelief and disobedience gets the branches broken off. And it's always faith that fastens the branches to the tree. It's the only way it works. So, if God didn't spare the natural branches when they didn't believe, neither will he spare you. You're the wild branch that's been grafted in. If God didn't spare the, the natural branch when they became disobedient and unbelieving, and he broke them off, yeah, you can be sure he's going to do the same with you. Even though he took and grafted you in, if you are not going to believe, you can be broken off just like they were. And if, through the mercy and grace of God, those broken off branches, notice what he says here in verse 23 of chapter 11, and even if they, the broken off branches, do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. God's going to graft them in he has the power to do so. And, and actually, by the way, they're actually the natural branches, so they're going to even be a better fit than you are. Okay? But what is all this going to depend on? All of this is going to depend on the power of God. God has the power to graft them in again. Guess what? A branch cannot graft itself. Never. This is a supernatural work of God that must graft the branch in. He can, do, he can do that with unbelieving Israel. He can do that with Gentiles. But it is the same power of God that must work to graft either the wild olive tree or the natural olive tree. So don't think you're so smart. Don't think you have it all figured out. Don't think you can do this in your own power. Remember, God is still at work even with unbelieving Israel. They have the same opportunity. They have the same responsibility as you do. Remember, at one time, you too were disobedient. At one time, you too were unbelieving. And how did you come into the family of God? It was only by the mercy and grace of God. It wasn't because you were smart. It wasn't because you were good. It wasn't because you were related to somebody. No. The only way you have come into the family of God is by the call and mercy of God himself. All of us, it says here, by nature are disobedient. God has consigned us all to disobedience, verse 32, so that he may have mercy. And so we are obligated. We are obligated to humility. We are obligated to respect we are obligated to awe. And our response must be the response of the Apostle Paul. The end of this weighty section in the book of Romans. We get here and we, we're wrestling with some of these uncomfortable truths about God. We're wrestling with some of these uncomfortable realities about who we are. What are we going to do? What are we going to say then? You see, the bottom line is this. The bottom line of the whole book of Romans, the bottom line of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is this. If God doesn't act first, we are all lost. Every one of us. 
if God doesn't act, none of us stand a chance. Neither Israel nor the, nor the Gentiles. Only the children of the promise, only those who believe will be saved. And the only way we're going to believe is if God does something. He sent His Son to die for us. He sends His messengers to preach the gospel. We are dependent on Him. And what this should cause us to do is worship. To throw ourselves down before a mighty and holy God. An all-powerful God. A God who can and will fulfill His promises. A God who loves us. A God who sacrificed Himself for us. We must throw ourselves on His mercy and His grace. We cannot trust ourselves. We cannot trust our lineage, our heritage. We cannot trust our abilities. We must trust Him and Him alone. We can trust His great and precious promises we can trust His great and precious promises precisely because He is great and He is sovereign and He is powerful. Otherwise, we couldn't trust Him. He is powerful. He is mighty to save. We have no other option but to say what the Apostle Paul says here in the last few verses of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has told him what to do? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? And the answer is nobody. Our God is without peer. Our God is God. And we are not. Everything he does, everything he says is self-existing. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And now let's be led in a hymn of response and worship to God.